This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is December 1st, 2022. I'm Strat Blunderboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, healthcare is in the limelight here in British Columbia and nationally. Guns are a mess and so is the story we talked about about Chinese election interference. So we'll get into all of that. First, go to patreon.com slash politicoast and become a patron of our show. And uh, before I dive in, just quick, quick correction from last week. Uh, when we're talking about the uh, housing stuff off the cuff, I speculated that uh, there is not much of a premium when it comes to, or price differential when it comes to uh, rental restricted strata units. Uh, after talking to someone in the industry, I was corrected and it turns out there's probably about a 20%-ish increase in price uh, for non-restricted units compared to restricted units. Congratulations, everyone who just uh, became 20% wealthier on paper, thanks to a stroke of the pen by our new premier. Use that extra wealth that you can't actually access to support our podcast. Take out a home equity line of credit to become a patron. (laughs) Let's start here in British Columbia, as we always do now. The province is also doing very well financially. We had a fiscal update that showed uh, we're very, very well. Uh, we had a $5.7 billion surplus kind of come out of nowhere. Yeah, so this is primarily driven by higher than expected uh, income tax revenue, both on the personal and corporate side. Um not a surprise with inflation high, like your nominal revenue amounts are going to go up. And that's what the surplus is in is nominal dollars. So yeah, we'd probably think uh, inflation and an economy that's ticking along not too badly otherwise. This gives a lot of room for the government to do a lot. David E.B. has already rolled out about $2 billion worth of what they're calling cost of living measures. Despite all this, ICBC is still expected to lose about $300 million because their investments are probably doing much the same as most of ours, which is not great. (laughs) Don't look, just wait. But yeah, overall, this is very good news for our new premier to just come in and have a giant bag of money to spend. Uh, Rob Shaw notes in a piece he put out this week about... David Eby maybe needing to or wanting to call an early election that if he doesn't spend all of this money in the fiscal year or in the coming year, uh, it just goes to debt repayment because of our lovely balanced budget laws. So Eby either needs to change that law or spend a lot of cash. And I think I know which one he'll lean towards. Well, there's always the option of uh sneaking an amendment in the uh, Budget Implementation Act. Um, but yeah, th- this gives them quite a bit of flexibility. Um, I will note $5.7 billion is more than 20% of what uh, the province spends on healthcare, and given the current state of the system, we could sure use it, and it's also more than we are likely to get out of any uh, negotiated increase in the Canada health transfer. So... Yeah, it gives them a lot of room, but it also 
takes away the we're doing everything we can if they don't actually throw that all into tackling some of the more pressing files they have. And there's a risk the BCNDP is going to run into the same problems the liberals did of keeping a balanced budget when things are going off the rails in a bad way for the liberals that was housing and the NDP, it could be the healthcare system. The challenge is it's not fully clear to me if this like almost $6 billion is more of a one-time thing or a new like structural amount of money that they can commit to spending. If it's a one-time thing, you can't invest it in like operating the healthcare system at a larger scale. You can build a hospital with it. You could build a SkyTrain extension. You could do that kind of infrastructure capital spending. But if it is just a one-time thing, I don't know, build a museum, that kind of stuff. But you can't hire more people and like increase your costs. Like the government has signed a bunch of new contract negotiations, as we talked about a few weeks ago, and that will eat into the ongoing um, fiscal capacity that has increased over the years. So there are still ways I think they can improve the healthcare system, but it it can still understand why they would want more money from the feds beyond just then it's someone else's money, sort of. Yeah, although if it is inflation-driven in large part, like that's going to be fairly sticky. Though it also means their expenses are likely to decline in, in the coming years, so we'll have to see. But there is money to spend, and it's likely not just a sudden surge in uh, tax revenue that's going to disappear next year unless we go into a big recession. Which we might, but uh, in terms of healthcare, though, the NDP did announce a couple things this week. The big announcement they started off the week with was changes to the approval of internationally educated family doctors. Specifically, they are going to be tripling the number of seats for the practice ready assessment program from 32 to 96. And they're going to be opening up a new associate physician class for internationally trained doctors to work with provincial doctors in acute care settings, I guess kind of like a nurse practitioner, but then they would be able to launch their own practice fairly quickly. Yeah, it's it's not entirely clear from just the government's uh, press release on how that works and whether there's like a path to full licensure. But yeah, it gives them basically the ability to work in acute care settings, basically as a as a doctor under the supervision of another doctor that is fully licensed, which, yeah, will no doubt take the strain off and is probably a good intermediary step. The thing I'm like, is that we were taking like less than 40 people in a year to have them assessed as internationally educated doctors. You're like, good, we're boosting that thing. That was a very low number to start with. That's kind of a little nuts. That was the case up until now. To be fair, I have no clue how many doctors there are in BC and how many we need. I agree, there's very small numbers, but there's been a doctor yeah. shortage for a long time. Like the the difficulty finding a GP is not something that has just popped up in the last year. Yeah, so this is fairly positive and is met with similar reaction to most uh, announcements since David Eby became premier, which is that's great. Why did it take so long? And it's a fair question. Yeah, especially when like everything seems to have like stalled out for the better part of a year, only to suddenly kick into gear when uh, EB became premier. You do get the sense that 
the government was kind of holding things back for an opportune time, which, okay, fine. If you're announcing like a new bridge that's going to be built in like five years time or whatever, that's fine. But when it's something that's pressing like the state of the healthcare system as it teeters on the verge of collapse, maybe there should be more important things than trying to get your timing right for politically optimum conditions. Well, maybe now we know why EB was so frustrated with Apadurai running against him initially, because he could have done all of this a month ago. <laughs> well, he could have done this all a month ago if he'd actually just taken the uh, the transition at that point rather than stretching out another month. Two months so. then, but yes. Uh, one of the things that will be taking a few more years to happen is the new medical school at Simon Fraser University. This has been announced in the past, but they have announced the hiring of the dean and updated the timeline for it. And it will now be opening in 2026 instead of next September, which was one of the more earlier timelines, according to Richard Zussman. Like another medical school is good, getting more doctors trained. Obviously, it won't help in the very short term, but definitely necessary to get those nursing and doctor seats through. Uh, yeah, it's good to see. But yeah, the timing is always going to be frustrating. So yeah, in the 2030s. Or 24, 20, mid-2030s, we can start getting some doctors out of there. Uh, and finally, the other thing in the healthcare realm that has been slightly dogging the NDP for a while, and it's something I know the BC Greens have been on, and there have been a series of stories, is what TELUS Health is doing within our medical system. A number of people have reported that their family doctor has decided to start seeing them through TELUS Health, a virtual system. No one had a problem with that. or during the pandemic, it was fine. It was what you would do. But then they were being told if you wanted to stick with your doctor, you now had to sign up for this TELUS Health Life Plus premium program and pay to see your family doctor for family doctor purposes, which seems like it's against the spirit, if not the letter of the law of our healthcare system. And the NDP didn't seem to be doing anything about it. And the Greens were like lighting their hair on fire. Uh, and now they're suing TELUS. The government, that is, or at least the Medical Services Commission. Under the direction of the, the minister yeah. on this. He was the one that announced the, the suit today. So companies can't charge people for things covered under the uh, public coverage. They are allowed to cover uh, things for charge that aren't covered by the public system. TELUS says they, that's what they were doing. They weren't uh, charging people for access to the public system province obviously disagrees we'll wait to see how the court uh settles this all out but uh yeah not a good look for TELUS if they were uh double billing what's interesting in the vancouver sun piece is they got a hold of the medical service commission petition to the court that's asking for an injunction to stop TELUS health from continuing uh apparently the commission hired a private investigator to contact TELUS Health multiple times about finding a family physician. This person was given five options for enrollment, four of which cost money, and then they were finally offered the company's virtual pharmacy for free. And that's kind of the red flag there, that it's like they're blurring the lines between, yes, you should be able to see a family doctor for general checkups for free, but they're like, well, we're adding something to each of those checkups, and now it costs money. Uh, Dix has also mentioned that the injunction they're seeking isn't trying to shut down the ability to use TELUS Health to do virtual checkups and virtual 
chats with your existing doctor. It's just the payments that they're going after. Uh, uh, Telus is mad. They're like, you should have should have talked to us before suing us. Um, maybe. <laughs> I'm I am glad to see them finally take action on this because it's something that would have been weird for the BCNDP to not. Uh, it was weird they hadn't taken more clear action, but I guess they've been building this case and now they were able to launch it. And finally, provincially, the last story we wanted to get into is a really good one in the tie from Andrew McLeod, who dug into how uh, freedom of information is going in the province. Longtime listeners will recall that the BCNDP brought in new legislation to fix our broken FOI system. People would get their requests dealt faster, it would clear the backlog, uh, and it would cost you five bucks. Well, it was going to cost more initially, and then they brought it back down. Or to $10, actually. I get all my fees. $10 yeah. is the yeah, application Yeah, I get all my fees, fees confused. Um, that that didn't seem to turn out to be the case. I mean, the $10 is getting charged to people, but... Yeah, well, they, they won't pass up an opportunity for revenue. But uh, the actual service relative to the quantity of FOIs is not improved. So within the last year that they have a full year's data on ending March 31st, they received 5,253 general FOIs. That compares to 6,467 the year before and 8,147 uh, the year before that. So they've had a 36% drop in the last two years in terms of general FOIs. Those are ones that go to you know, government agencies, like send us all your documents on this or that as opposed to the personal FOIs, which are free and are access to your own data the government has. Uh, while the number of FOIs have been dropping, the average response time has been going in the opposite direction, up to 65 days, which is 16 more than before, a 33% increase from two years prior. So all in all, the government's charging more money Receiving fewer FOIs, but taking longer to process them. The government's uh, report claims that processing time is actually improved on all but the co most complex 3% of requests. So that's how they're trying to justify it, saying there's a very small number that are skewing the average, but it doesn't pass the sniff test. Uh, we have no report on how many FOIs Bob Mackin is doing these days or the opposition. Unfortunately, those would be fascinating numbers to know how much Bob Mackin is personally paying to fund our government through FOI fees. Uh, but this is bad. And this, I really need to say it like, good work, Andrew McLeod, on getting this out there and following this up because this is something that, like, every journalist has been mad about, both before for the FOIs taking too long and now for them taking too long and costing money to take even longer. Yeah, like this is absolutely bad. So the pitch at the time was that this was going to improve the FOI system, speed it up, and it clearly hasn't. So there's basically one of two options for why that is. Either the NDP was deceptive about it or they are incompetent and neither of those are good outcomes or good reasons for this like i think 
the key focus is on that average response time. I think the number of FOI requests, it's somewhat informative, but I like, and if it trends down, that's a sign of something, but you know, there, there could be fewer FOIs because there are fewer journalists. Bob Mackin's retired. Bob Mackin retired or doesn't want to pay the fees. And you could even be super generous and go, the government's magically more trans. Uh, transparent and so people don't need to foi this (laughs) okay let's not get ridiculous here like that number doesn't tell me as much as the average response time and that increase is yeah the the average well it's the two of them moving uh the way they have kind of together paints the particularly bad picture because if response if fois had stayed the same or gone up and response time hadn't really changed or gone up you know if they were if they had gone from 8,000 to 15,000 FOIs and response time had gone up, okay, we can understand that. The system's more swamped. It's taking, it's draining the resources because they're getting more than they're used to. Like, that is an understandable reason. When your demand drops and your processing time goes up, like that's the clear red flag that something's gone wrong. I pulled up the actual report and what they're trying to show is that 97% of requests are responded to within 41 days versus uh, two years ago was 43 and last year was 45. So that has improved a trivial amount. In 2017, it was 33 days. Uh, the law is 30. <laughs> the, the law is they're supposed to do it within 30, but then they can do a request for an extension in certain limited circumstances. So you would expect the average to be under 30 with some, you know, taking a bit longer. Uh, but they're really arguing that there's just these like small number of very increasingly complex ones. Uh, I guess, I don't know, trying to see what's on John Horgan's phone. That one probably wasn't the more complex one. I have done some FOIs, and some of them are a little bit more complex, like asking for every correspondence between a school and a ministry can be a bit more complex. I understand that, but there's there's not a commitment here, right? There's not a lot of, we're going to fix this, uh, and we are happy with, or, you know, we're not happy with what we're doing. It's almost like they're patting themselves on the back by going, we got at least one trend, one metric to slightly go in the right direction. Therefore, things are going great. I mean, one could be a cynic and say this is going in the direction they want and that they're the lo- decreasing transparency was kind of the goal to begin with, with throwing in the, the $10 fee. Mm. I'm still scrolling down through this report. And so something else that's super interesting, uh, we do have the amount that has been paid in the fees for 2021-2022, and that's just shy of $12,000. The FOI system does allow fees and did allow fees before that if you were a super complex case, and that would generally be charged to the opposition when they ask for like you know, something that's going to take hundreds of hours so they can ask for a bit of fees. And so in 2017, they actually had $60,000 in fees. But from that purpose, in 2018, it was 63000 It then dropped to 44000 and it sits around 50000 now. So the $10 fee is actually not 
a significant revenue source, at least. Yeah, that doesn't even pay one person's salary. Yeah. Uh, Like, it doesn't hurt, but it's still money that is annoying to pay. Yeah, like, the government's paperclip budget is probably larger than that. In the grand scheme of them, that's really insignificant and... Yeah, just just kind of I think shows that the the net effect is more dissuasion from filing FOIs than it is giving the system more resources to process. One thing to notice yeah. that the eleven thousand represents four months of reporting, not a full year's worth. On there, that said, you know, multiply that out for no. a full year, and it's still not a full time person's salary. Like I do see the value, or, or I do understand the argument that there are certain FOIs that are frivolous at like trying to see someone's white spot receipt, which is what Bob Mackin has done in the past. That's not as necessarily valuable to the public good and information as many of the other things journalists ask for. But in the grand scheme of things, that's relatively trivial to, you know, just accept as a cost of managing a open and transparent government. And what we're seeing here is that just we we're not seeing that here right we're not seeing the commitment and there's no promise going forward to change that and maybe we'll see that with the cabinet shuffle we'll see if lisa bear keeps her position in citizen services or if there is some kind of pivot to try to look more or try to bring someone in who's more eager to fix the fixes as it were well yeah when when you're running a 70 billion dollar organization you can probably afford to spend a, a few dollars processing uh the occasionally slightly frivolous foi request as just kind of the cost of doing business in a democracy but they can be embarrassing scott and you can just choose not to do them and eat the political cost and here we are so yeah, good work, Andrew McLeod, in paying attention to that report when it got dropped. Uh, we'll all keep hoping for a pivot on transparency going forward. Let's jump over to our federal politics quick takes. We'll start with a little bit more of a deep dive quick take, as it were, on where Bill C-21 is at. I keep seeing it flagged as the worst thing to ever happen anytime I go anywhere on Reddit because there are just people there who love guns and they love going Are you an, are you browsing our Canada guns or something? No. It's the as lefty subs. It's RNDP, it's like Canada left, it's and then all the main normie subs all have gun nuts in them and they're like all saying the same things. Reddit's prone to being uh targeted by troll campaigns and all of that but i think they might have a reasonable point here what's happening scott so bill c21 is the government's bill that's going to add some of their previous firearms commitments including a buyback program for the guns that had previously been announced as moving into the prohibited firearms category as well as enacting the handgun freeze some of the legislation around that um coming in there which 
is weird. And we've talked about the handgun freeze thing and why it makes no damn sense theoretically. But regardless, it was kind of just a, hey, we're going to do some of the stuff we previously announced. This is the legislation to do it. Uh, it was going through. You had the you know, typical complaints from the opposition parties that you would expect. And then things went to committee and got weird. So liberal MP Paul Chang uh, introduced an amendment that prohibited all center fire semi-automatics uh, that are designed to accept a detachable cartridge magazine uh, with a capacity of five rounds or greater of the type for which the firearm was originally designed. Which So basically a detachable magazine semi-automatic. That covers a huge range of firearms, as well as an amendment that listed off thousands of additional firearms by name. And that's the thing that has gotten a lot of people upset as kind of a stealthy legislative maneuver to ban entire classes of Firearms, firearms that are generally in the non-restricted firearms category, i.e. the least prohibitive uh, type of firearm in the country under our system. And that has understandably got a lot of people upset because it includes a lot of hunting firearms and type of guns that people use for purposes other than criming, which is what, in theory, the gun legislation is supposed to be addressing is public safety and those more directly The duck hunters be mad, Scott. So procedurally, the bill is in committee. It's at the Standing Committee on Public Safety and National Security. It's had eight meetings now, I think. It was the meeting on November 24th, I believe, that this came through. Amendments at committee are relatively standard. Let's say that. I've watched a couple bills go through, even when it's like a major legislation. The point of committee is to bring eyes on the bill, bring experts in, have parliamentarians think and really look at this. And on a bill I worked on and lobbied on, a, a, a section was repealed from it, from the bill by lobbying from other uh, groups. So the government can change position and will change position on a bill and parts of a bill within committee. What makes this weird, and I we don't have the exact minutes and we haven't read through all of the committee testimony to figure out where exactly this happened, but it seems like this happened late in an evening and this is a relatively large amendment, a 478-page thing listing all of these firearms. I get that that's large just because they decided this class like I, like they basically added a class of firearms which is all of them or all the long guns yeah like this covers a huge range of stuff beyond just the semi-automatics which are called out uh as a type but just a lot of guns by name including very common hunting rifles um yeah so like it's the legislative process that has raised a lot of eyebrows in addition to uh doing this because i think it's fair to characterize this as like fundamentally changing the nature and scope of the bill if passed this would 
be probably the single biggest change to Canadian gun control and gun laws since and the, the introduction subsequent of repeal of the, the long gun, gun registry. registry. And yeah, although even by the time it had been subsequently repealed, it wasn't like the requirement to register new firearms on it had basically been in a permanent state of amnesty for a couple of years at that point. Um, so arguably the enacting legislation was more significant than the repealing legislation. Um, but like, regardless, this, this is a very significant change to a government bill and being introduced by a backbencher, apparently late at night, um, during committee, but regardless, being introduced by a backbencher does raise a few eyebrows on that because, I mean, it, it's the Trudeau government. This is a government where things are so centralized that, uh, you know, an MP probably wouldn't even sneeze without the PMOs signing off on it. And with such a centralized operation for the liberals, the idea that a liberal would kind of freelance this without the PMO approval well, of it is You would just see it by the fact much the amendment zero. passed, right? The scope of it and the scale of it, if... A random MP is bringing forward 500 pages of things and like, we should add this to the bill. And everyone's like, sounds good, Paul. That doesn't make sense, logically. Like, the liberals knew what was being brought forward and all agreed with it. Uh, sounds like the amendment passed. So they got votes from the NDP and or block. I don't know the full committee structure. Uh, but they're roughly in line with Parliament. The Liberals don't have a majority on the committee, so they needed other votes. It's not like the bill is anywhere near passed. It still needs to come back to the full House and be voted on at third reading, and then it has to go through the full Senate process. And this could all be stripped in the Senate, for all we know. So lots of work still to happen on this. Um, there's one new Democrat on the committee, Alistair McGregor, and that's it. And one block. Is he a urban or a rural New Democrat? Uh, I believe Alistair represents Coach in Malahat Langford. Oh, he's a oh, he's my parents' MP. I should know that. Um, yeah, so that's a a reasonably rural, but not particularly gun-heavy part of uh, BC. Um, but yeah, it's th this is the sort of thing I could see putting some tension within the NDP on. They're kind of urban versus rural fat or segments of the party. Yeah, where they and draw their, I've seen their MPs from like those debates within the NDP. Like I was saying off the top, our NDP on Reddit is very anti this bill now. Uh, but Reddit is a weird place, and I would not recommend it. Like most places, I'm spending more time there just as Twitter goes down. Uh, the the party as a whole, like you say, is taking that more urban approach and more uh, sympathetic to the liberal position against guns. Like, I'm personally not a gun owner. My parents, my dad is probably affected by these changes. I don't know exactly which kinds of guns he owns, but he does have some hunting weapons. My brother also has some, my older brother. Um, they're in Alberta. They don't like this anyway, right? Already multiple provinces, provincial governments, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, have condemned this change and said this is unreasonable. So some are even threatening not to enforce it 
the laws within their province over this. Oh my god, we didn't even put the Sovereignty Act in there. We'll have to come back to that. Yeah, so this may be the first test of the Sovereignty Act, but Saskatchewan is making similar threats around not enforcing it, which not a surprise, I guess, but like is definitely going to like ramp up regional tensions for sure if this thing passes. So yeah, it's uh procedurally it's a bit of a mess and also like the liberal government is doing this in a weird way that unlike some of the last couple bits of uh gun cha- policy changes they did where they were like very upfront about it and trumpeting what they were doing the subterfuge or like this unorthodox way of going about it's weird as was the comments by marco mendocino the minister uh for public safety who said we're not trying to ban hunting rifles at all which let's be clear it is a flat-out lie based on what's in the amendment here that is very clearly has the approval of his government on so like e- even if you're not a gun person and like i don't have a any guns i don't have my uh firearms license like this doesn't affect me personally but regardless it should bother people if the government is just lying about what's in their legislation particularly if they want to go around then trying to manage misinformation online like if you're it's hard to trust the liberals when they say they want to tackle disinformation when they are very clearly spreading yeah i'm I guess, yeah. It'll be interesting when this comes back to the House. It sounds like these amendments are going to sail through. Because even if they didn't get the NDP on board, which I believe they did, I think the bloc is generally pretty close on the gun issues with the Liberals. So, Although they have some rural writings that I could see it being controversial the way it is with in the... Uh... Who knows how the, the block NDP. operates these days, Scott? And like, Who knows? Yeah. Um, I'm not going to have any particular insight into it. I just want to note that there may be the same structural factors uh, in there based on the seats they represent. The conservatives have already promised they're going to repeal this if they get elected. And yeah, I 100% believe they'll follow through on that one. Um, and like... I don't can't think of recent polling on questions about hunting rifles particularly, but the general sense I get from the last time I think there's any real poll, which is a long time ago from what I can remember and kind of the general discourse around this is like most Canadians don't have as much of an issue with like rural Canadians owning hunting rifles and, and using them in rural setting and as a result like i'm not sure this is going to be as big a political win and potentially sets up for some strong regional backlashes and as well as making life unpleasant for the opposition parties that are going to go along with this that have rural seats finally coming back to a story we talked about i think a couple weeks ago about reports that CSIS had given a briefing to prime minister trudeau in January about allegations that China had interfered in the 2019 election by funneling money through an Ontario MPP's office to candidates to be more pro-China and 
refuse meetings with uh, Taiwanese representatives. Um, we have a few more takes on that. The chief electoral officer has said they were never briefed on issues with the 2019 election and have no evidence that it was put into question in any way. And that is something the prime minister has now said as well. Uh, he has straight up said, Trudeau has finally said, he never had those meetings in January, which is a take or a statement. <laughs> yeah. And like, if he had said that the day after the story broke, it'd be one thing. But like waiting, I think it was 10 days before he said that and in the intervening time had apparently confronted Chinese President Xi Jinping over interference in Canadian legends. Sure, it's possible that uh, the global story uh, by Sam Cooper was just incorrect or he'd gotten bad information or whatever. It, it could happen. What doesn't make sense is how the government responded subsequently to it. Yeah, I get that it and takes... And the timing afterwards. It could take a few hours, a couple days to figure out what you did in January. I couldn't tell you who I met in January or what well, I like, did. I was in a new baby blur. Nothing happened. I am surprised it's December already. So fair enough. 10 days is weird for someone who has a very meticulously documented calendar though yeah and like i don't know if i'm prime minister or if i'm the issues manager in the pmo and i see this story when i go to check the news in the morning you you can be pretty sure that my first call is to figure out okay what the hell is going on here with this this is the biggest story of the day it's more than that though scott because sam cooper would have reached out to pmo for comment before hitting publish yeah so like they knew there's there's no way that a a government doesn't go into hide you're going okay we need to figure this out asap and the last person who's commented on it is rcmp commissioner brenda lucky who every time she opens her mouth somehow makes the rcmp look worse uh she said i have no ev we had no evidence at the time of foreign interference but there is now an investigation open that she is not willing to comment more on and has provided redacted documents to the committee that's studying it. Which, again, the Parliament's <laughs> getting way too many redacted documents for how our system is supposed to work. Aside from everything else going on here. Yeah. So, like, I can kind of see how maybe the chief electoral officer was cut out of the loop on the thesis thing if there was top secret information around how they attain the intelligence or whatever and yeah maybe that shouldn't have maybe they should have been briefed or i don't even know what the security require classification uh clearance requirements are for the position like maybe they have the the requisite clearances maybe not but you could kind of maybe see how okay things would have broken down particularly if this was intelligence shared with us by our allies and there was pretty significant limits placed on how that information could be disseminated within canada not telling the rcmp though at the time seems particularly troubling with respect to that and i don't know taken as a whole just there is some piece of the puzzle that is clearly missing because not everything is clicking together as it should 
on this. It's it's totally reasonable that no one knew anything in 2019, and that CSIS only started to learn about it in 2020, developed their file, uh, and turned it over to the RCMP and the Prime Minister at some point in 2021 or 2022, and the Prime Minister is informed in January 2022, allegedly. So fine. Lucky and the RCMP know nothing at the time. I believe that. The electoral officer, as you say, guess doesn't need to know how good the elections they oversee are doing fine because of national security. But yeah, some something is not adding up in this with the and we've talked about like deception from the federal government, but there's always usually like some level of either understandable incompetence from a minister or like weasel words from the prime minister. And his his language here has been more direct in saying, I didn't get briefed that money was given to candidates. As far as I read the comments, I don't have them in front of me, which is a pretty strong uh, refutation of what Sam Cooper reported. So someone's wrong here. Someone got spun or is lying, and I don't know who. And maybe this committee that got established we'll find out hopefully uh in the meantime we're all kind of just flailing in the dark not sure how our country is operating within the world which i guess is the normal state of things to be fair national security is generally pretty secretive yeah it is usually though when when something like this does come out there's at least a little more clarity or or things just don't seem quite as contradictory Ah, like I said, something's clearly missing on this, and ah, hopefully we'll find that out. But uh, yeah, being national security, we may never. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.